VP ZD. We're back. We're back and we're doing a joint show. We're interviewing one of our favorite people, actually your colleague yeah. and my friend, Dr. Rita Redberg. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here with two of my favorite people. It um, was pre-pandemic yeah. that mm-hmm. I did a show with uh, Rita. In before. the old studios. The old, stu- the old studio studios. Z, yeah. my garage. She had to get a tennis booster before <laughs> yeah. she went. Yeah, it was the old studio. <laughs> I think yep. she did step oh, on a nail. Yeah, you could have easily. <clears throat> yeah. This is beautiful. This yeah, is we've really, studio. the pandemic has really upgraded my lifestyle when it comes to <laughs> podcasting. But um, Rita is a professor of medicine at UCSF and a cardiologist. And one of the reasons we really wanted to talk to her together too is that she shares a passion with us, which is uh, over-treatment, unnecessary medical care, and the harms that come from that. And uh, so we want to dive into that stuff because a lot of people don't realize healthcare can hurt you bad. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, um, where where should we start, Vinay? Because- I guess I think maybe the first thing to say is that, you know, I think we also want to acknowledge under-treatment. We all agree under-treatment's a problem. That's a big problem. And that's often a social determinants of health problem. And that's the key, An which is like issue, yeah. under-treatment is often related to economics and access to healthcare in the first place. But among people, particularly in this country, who are well-insured and wealthy, I think under-treatment is something, yes, you always worry about, but you also worry about the flip side of the coin, over-treatment, doing too much for them because it's too easy and it's reimbursed too high. And I think you've spent your career kind of studying this. How did you first get interested in over-treatment? So I'm glad you mentioned under-treatment because I do think it's part of the big picture. And to me, it's not, I don't think anyone can say we don't spend enough on healthcare in the U.S. because mm. we spend you know, almost trillion. $4 trillion a year, like more than twice as much per person on average than the next most high spending country in the world. But you can say that there are people that aren't getting absolutely things they need, and that is a big problem. And then there are people that are getting way more things than they need, and that is also a problem. And that's a problem that the people that are getting way too much are mostly unaware of that. Mm. But there are definitely some percentage of healthcare, and I've seen estimates between 30 to 90% is sort of over-treatment or waste or things that people would frankly be better off without. Um, I can answer how I got into it. Yeah, how'd you get into it? Um, So perhaps I told you this last time we talked, but I would say I grew up in Brooklyn. My parents, you know, were raised during the Depression. Neither of them graduated high school. And I will say we lived in pretty modest Household, there was not a lot of waste. I mean, my mother was the original recycler before there was a term of recycling. But and so I think it was really instilled in me not to waste things. That, sounds, that was not good. Sounds like she had Indian parents. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't throw anything. She's, away. she's a nice Jewish girl. It's the same thing. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. But what are you doing? Are you wasting? Put yeah. it to use. Put it, the, 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 the container in which the cereal is held is also edible. Well, <laughs> I saw someone had a thread on Twitter, and I don't mm-hmm. remember who it was, asking people to share, like, if they grew up in you know, mm-hmm. modest circumstances, share what were things that they still have a hard time doing, even though I certainly yes. you know, make a decent salary now. and. It was things like never buy cut fruit. I thought, yeah, I do that. I never buy cut fruit. You could slice it yourself. Or it <laughs> like, yeah. I just, I read through the first 10. I thought, oh no, <laughs> I do all of those. So I think it gets instilled in Yeah, you, scarcity you know? mindset. It's a scarcity mindset. Yeah. So you grew up in that in Brooklyn with the parents like that. Mm-hmm. I, I did. And then of course I you know, went to college, med school and on loans and scholarship. But when I got to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, I was very lucky, I think, to work with John Eisenberg, who mm. then went on to um, head the division, the um, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. But he was doing a project at that time asking the house staff 
to think about why they were ordering daily labs on inpatients. Ah. And so he would actually send them notes every morning and say, what did you learn? Did it, inter- did it help in the care of the patient? Did you do things differently? Was the patient better off? And then like any good academic, you know, he sort of studied their pre and their post-test lab ordering and found that the notes had absolutely no impact on house staff lab ordering, mm. but it had a huge impact on me because I was a second-year medical student and it got me thinking that the house staff who I kind of looked up to and revered might be doing things that weren't absolutely evidence-based. And I had never really questioned the things we do in medicine might not be evidence-based and so that made me sort of, and that was early in my, you know, medical clinical education. When I started my clinical rotations, I started thinking about: Are we doing this because it's good for the patient, or is it just something we do in medicine? And then I actually got to spend a year. Um, I got a Toron fellowship from the University of Pennsylvania and spent a year at London School of Economics studying health policy between my third and fourth year of medical school. I don't think I knew that, yeah. And that was really great, both because, well, because I spent a year in England, that was fun, but also because not just what I learned, you know, about health policy and cost-effectiveness, but at that time, if you were a student in Great Britain, you got a National Health Service card. So I actually had an NHS card and could see how the NH system, NHS system worked for its good points and its bad points. I did some clinical rotations in the National Health Service. So I took call with some of the um, British medical students, and I spent my spring break working with GPs there. So I really got to see a system that spends, you know, probably a third of what we do per person, yet everyone gets an NHS card. Everyone has a GP. You know, I mean, you might wait longer for some things, but and things, you know, that was in the 80s. Things have changed now, although the basic tenets are the same. So it was very, it really changed my perspective. And when I went into cardiology, it was both because I like cardiology, but also because I think a lot of what we spend money that is probably not giving us a good return on investment is in technology. And that we're, it's because we're not evaluating technology before we, we kind of embrace wholeheartedly that anything new and high tech must be good. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's absolutely not true. And Mm I um, think that that's what drives a lot of our excess spending that is not only not helping people, but harming them. So, so yeah, and let's double down on something there, the harming people. So people say, oh, you know, undertreatment is the real problem. We're just not doing enough for enough people, even though we spend the most in the civilized world and get the worst outcomes. And you could talk about, you know, prenatal care as being something, yeah, you should definitely spend money on. And yeah. if you're underdoing that, it's bad. But how is it that, say, spending too much on technology can actually harm somebody? Because I think a lot of patients don't understand that they could really be injured by this stuff. Basically, if you have something that is not going to improve your health, so it's like take those lab tests, but something that hasn't been shown to you know make you better, CT scans, a lot of the CT imaging is a very common overused test. The only thing that can happen is harm, and it's it's not just drug treatments, but tests. You know, you find things that you didn't need to know about, and then you get another test, and maybe you get a surgery. I mean, it's so common now. I'm sure you see this in clinic. But commonly in clinic, I have patients that are having organs removed because they had an incidental finding on a test they didn't need in the first place. Mm. And so it's just, if there's no upside, you just really should stay away from it because there can, even if the risks are low. Like I was at Cardiology Grand Rounds today before 
we uh-huh. came down here. And one of the fellows was presenting his work on echo, how you could measure pulmonary pressure, the pressure in your lungs versus getting the invasive right heart cath, which people think, oh, it's really simple. But he pointed out there's not a zero complication rate. People do die from the right heart cath. It's not common. But if you didn't need the test, there's why take any risk? And I think so, that's really well put. I mean, I think what you, I, I guess the interesting thing to me is you're pushing on the two different groups. So one is you put a device in somebody that doesn't work on average and somebody inevitably gets an infection or they bleed too much. That's a harm that we yeah, all see. But you're talking about the harm of information. And I think that's what's hardest for people to get. You remember Mark Cuban a couple of years ago said, oh, you know, everyone needs all these blood tests to get a baseline. Right. Let's get your baseline. Right. And I think people live with this idea that like all information is good. It can only be used for good. But I think the thing about medicine that you learn is one, some information is useless. You know, if you had uh, sequenced every stool you ever had, I don't know what you're going to do with that information. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) Yeah. Stool sequencing. (laughs) Well, you know, I joke, but there are a lot of people doing heavy microbiome. Microbiome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, sequencing. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe they'll make it pan out someday, but you know, it's not ready for prime time. Um, But also, as you point out that, you get a scan for one reason, just to be safe, and they found a little renal cyst or a, renal, a little spot on the, on the kidney. They don't know what to do with. You get another scan six months later, it's a little bit bigger, or maybe it was just the slice is actually a slightly different mm-hmm. slice. And the next thing you know, you're getting a partial nephrectomy, mm-hmm. you know, and, right. and that's not uncommon. Right. And you've lived that year worrying that you mm-hmm. have something in your kidney. You know, so now you don't think of yourself as this great, healthy person. Mm-hmm. Now you think of yourself as someone who might have something growing in their kidney. It's not you, so great. That's actually a key point because yeah. you talked about the dangers of information. Yeah. And and again, like, like Vinay said, we've been conditioned to think more info better, more data better. And this kind of segues right into this idea of precision medicine or genetic screening and this kind of things. Like the, the mental danger that leads down a, a cascade of harm is often underappreciated. So I, I tell the story, you know, I, I did the genetic testing 23andMe and I learned and and I learned some interesting things, but w- one of the things I learned- you dry earwax. What? <laughs> dry earwax, okay? I have dry earwax. You didn't know and until you know they what? tested you. And that has changed your life. <laughs> yeah, Pro- of course. Probability right? of alopecia, less than normal. <laughs> It did say less that. Less it than normal. Say that. Less well, than normal. There's hope for you. Like, you don't yeah. know me, Ann Wojcicki. You don't know me. But so the, the long story short I'll was I found it. I'll stage on slap you for yeah. that. <laughs> You're going to you go full Wilson. Yeah, full Wilson. You don't joke I, about that. You don't, oh, I totally <laughs> forgot. I just made an alopecia yeah, joke. You don't do that. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> Apparently that's Oscar Verboten. Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> I found out I have these two clotting uh, genes mm. and- that, you know, you would think, oh, that'd be very helpful to know because mm. I would be more careful about things. And I have been. But the problem is I had no f- real family history of, of problems. So what does it really mean clinically? Well, it means now that I worry anytime I get on a plane that I, for a while I was taking aspirin because I'm like, you know, I'll just take a baby aspirin a day. And then I started getting stomach discomfort. Mm. And I realized, oh, I'm going to get an ulcer just from my behavior change thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I, I don't want to have a blood clot. And it, and there's a kind of a, a anxiety and a panic component that happens that then raises your blood pressure and does all these unmeasurable things that aren't good. So mm-hmm. like like you said, Rita, I think if, if, if there's nothing you're going to do with that information, you, you don't have an intent going in, please don't do it because it can cause harm. I think that's absolutely true. But I think it's also true that sort of the general think is that information is helpful. And that, I mean, that was the whole thing that Theranos was built on, right? That she was going to give people, you know, the power to do their own blood tests and just, you know, go to CVS and get your 
your finger pricked. And I was like, how could this possibly be helpful? And that's an interesting but thing. That was because, the whole marketing thing for that idea, yeah. besides the other problems. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, for needle phobics and stuff too, it was a, yeah. a market. Yeah. But your point was that it's like, you know, some people worried that like the thing that brought him down ultimately is like, you couldn't do those tests on that little blood. Mm-hmm. But your point was that even if you could, you what would, could you, what, you what, wouldn't what want to? What would it right. do, right? Like, why what would, would you? Like, the fact that, you know, the whole thing was made up, but yeah, but the even whole premise of it, I thought was very faulty. You know, you, what, you can't take an asymptomatic person and make them feel better. And all of these tests kind of, I have patients coming to me all the time wanting to have a test, you know, a stress test, a CT scan, a carnic calcium score. And like, well, why do you want the test? Like, well, I I don't want to get a heart attack. I'm like, okay, I agree with you and we can work on that. But a test isn't going to prevent you Mm -hmm. from getting a heart attack. How could it possibly prevent you from getting? And I mean, that's just sort of a whole thing that is not really good for people and patients. And it promotes a lot of tests. And I've seen so many problems from people getting these tests that and and who do you I mean who do you think is promoting these tests mm, the makers of the test the makers of yeah, the test the test yeah, want you, you to so. be test, yeah. test early test often test often right. and and you know you think about things now that are in Van Eyes wheelhouse like uh, liquid biopsy or like screening blood mm. for multiple cancers I mean of what course. are your what are your thinking on on this yeah well you know um, uh, and we wrote something about this the Grail blood test and there's a bunch of companies going in this space and I think they have so many problems I mean one problem is that uh, it turns out that some cancers are more likely to have a quote unquote signature in the blood those are mm. cancers that have already spread because mm-hmm. if they've spread and they t- you know they're secreting a lot of uh, cytokines and they're shedding uh, it's going to be detectable in the blood but how often do you find cancer that has not yet spread detectable in the blood and then the next question is let's say you actually have a perfect test for it you can find people with early pancreas liver lung cancer um, you need to localize it because you need to cut it out because if you can't interdict upon it if you can't do something about it right. then what good was it to know about it they're going to be panicked I have a cancer somewhere I have no right. idea where it is and I think like the only gold standard way to know that your test improves outcomes for people is a really large randomized control trial. You randomize right. people to the routine use of your blood-based screening or not. Uh, the United Kingdom, I think, had an opportunity to do it, but they didn't. And they actually did sort of a big uncontrolled experiment. I think there's talk now of actually trying to do this randomized study for Grail and others. Um, so a UK is using Grail or? They had like a pilot study I of see. like 50,000 people or something that I haven't seen results for, mm-hmm. but a large number. And maybe a listener can put it in the comments if they know what has happened, but I haven't seen the result yet. Um, uh, but I think it needs to be done in a randomized fashion. Absolutely. It gets to the PSA screening too, right? Oh, yeah. The whole, I mean, do you have thoughts on that or? Well, yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, the person who discovered PSA said he ruse the day that that happened Mm. because nothing good came of it. I mean, they, and it's so hard to ever put the genie back in the bottle. You know, even when the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which I think is, you know, a very thoughtful group of experts gave PSA a grade D and then all these Doctors said, well, not in my hands. You know, I know how to use it so that my patients are better off. And, you know, that's not what the data shows. And and unfortunately, you know, and you have so many men that go for, at best, watchful waiting, which, again, right. you've taken someone who was having a perfectly happy life, and now they have to go see the doctor Anxious. every year and worry if they're having prostate cancer. But a lot of people are having procedures, you know, and there are all kinds of, you know, erectile dysfunction, urinary problems, incontinence for something that has never been shown to prolong life. So how, and this comes up a lot. When we talk about these things, you're going to see in the comments and there are going to be people who say, but 
I was screening prostate specific antigen mm. and it rose and they caught it, that rise, and it saved my life, mm-hmm. right? now. And then there'll be people who their PSA went through the roof and they had terrible prostate cancer and it killed them. So how do you talk about the overscreening thing in the setting of that kind of story? Because you have, I mean, you have to do randomized studies and show that the people that got the test and got detected are better off than the people who waited for some kind of symptoms and then were discovered and treated because and it you know it varies by cancer but a lot of those early cancers they go away mm-hmm. they never cause a problem you know Gil Welch talks about mm-hmm. you know the ones a lot of the ones that we can detect um the the ones that are the most harmful and you know you're the oncologist and I but I think are the ones that are so malignant we don't catch them on screening right. anyway because the slow growing ones that you can easily catch on screening are not the ones that are going to kill you. And we have great treatments for most cancers now. And so you have to actually show that you're better off with all of the harms that are going to come from early detection. And there are a lot of harms that you would be better off with early detection than you would be with waiting for clinical detection and then treatment. Yeah, what I would say is, and that's really well put, I think that's the key crux of the question. I mean, one thing people should know is that if you take people who uh, underwent an autopsy for a different reason, um, and you look at 80-year-olds, you won't be surprised if maybe 80% have some like latent prost- some prostate cancer you'll find in the prostate gland, And if you, uh, even though they died of a different reason. So we all know that as you get older, there's some rate with which we develop prostate cancer, and maybe it's a you know, few percent per decade of life, um, that many of us will have prostate cancer. We won't die from it, we'll die with it. Um, the next question about screening. Screening, if it catches a cancer that's already spread, it's just added lead time. You know you know about it sooner, but it's already spread. The horse is out of the barn. Are, are you really going to be able to change its fate? If it, cancers, it catches a cancer that was never going to spread or maybe even go away, you know, you're not helping somebody. You're just subjecting them to treatment harms, um, iatrogenesis without benefit. It's got to find a cancer that was otherwise going to spread and kill you. But now that you found it and cut it out, it's not going to spread and kill you. And the ratio of those three things is not intuitive. And so for the person in your office who says, well, I had a prostate cancer found, I was like, well, I don't know that you were the kind of person who, if you had done nothing, you would have lived another 15 years and maybe you would have died of a heart attack or you would have died of a car accident 25 years from now. And that would have never caused you a problem. Or alternatively, you know, sometimes people tell me that I'm glad I had screening detected cancer, but they have recurrent biochemical recurrence. And so it had already spread, you know, it didn't cure you. And now you have biochemical recurrence. And so you just had a prostatectomy years before you otherwise would. And then I think the other excellent point you make is that the alternative to not screening isn't not doing anything. It's that sometimes you feel a lump in your breast. Mm-hmm. That's the alternative to mammography. And then you'll be alerted and go to the doctor. Right. Um, it's not that you would wait for it to, you know. Yeah, right, right. Instead of having that 50% chance of a false positive or mm-hmm. a detection of a ductal carcinoma and then having, you know, besides of all the discomfort and the time spent and all yeah. of these screenings. And and that's in a very emotional issue for many people, uh, many women in particular about mammogram. It's like, well, but this is my life. You don't want to screen. And it's been very charged. And so sometimes, you know, like I'm even reluctant to talk about mammogram screening because I get very many angry emails from mm-hmm. women who will say my life was saved because the mammogram caught X, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same question is like, well, you really have to look at that. And what are the harms? The mm-hmm. harms are massive. Because like you said, you, you, first of all, the anxiety component, the actual intervention component on somebody who would never have progressed potentially to anything. Um, so we have to have these conversations about screening. Uh, where does colonoscopy fit on this? I'm curious. 
So I um, used to serve on the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and we were looking at uh, fecal colorectal cancer screening. Because mm-hmm. as you know, with ACA, the US, anything that gets an A or B from U.S. Preventive Services Task Force gets, gets first dollar coverage. So no out-of-pocket, very you know, good um, if they are good tests. But I noted that there was no data that shows that you're better off with a colonoscopy than with a fecal blood test. And mm-hmm. fecal blood tests, you, know, you don't have to take a day off work. You don't mm-hmm. have to have the discomfort of a colonoscopy, you know, the PrEP. And there are risks, of course, to the PrEP too. And now it's gotten, colonoscopy has gotten even riskier because as opposed to Europe where they do it without anesthesia, most commonly now it's done with anesthesia, with propofol. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans are so weak. They have to be knocked <laughs> out to have something put in their butt. Come on, dude. The Europeans then, have been doing it for years. Because you're feeling no pain, yeah. you don't notice oh, when you get oh, a buy. Yeah, and so our complication rate has gone up since oh. all the use of anesthesia. So now you're you're undergoing this risky screening and it's not any more effective at detecting colorectal cancer than the fecal blood test, which doesn't involve any of that. And the American Gastroenterology Society, I think, was visiting MedPAC's offices, you know, within the week to complain about, you know, and to talk about how they feel. That's Colonoscopy of, in their hands is much better. That's than, right. That's right. Than, than what the five. studies show. Right. And that's great. So do a study and, and show that it, you're really better off. At the end of the colon, there's a $600 bill. So that's, 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 that's <laughs> my dad always used to tell me that when he's trying to get me to specialize. Oh, really? Don't do primary care. There's 5,000 rupees in everybody's colon. Take a scope and fish it out. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that they finally, when I looked at the literature a while back, which is um, uh, FOBT versus, you know, usual like observate versus regular care at that time, no screening, you know, it has a statistically significant reduction in colorectal cancer mortality, although it did not yet have an all-cause mortality reduction. But in a meta-analysis of sigmoidoscopy, it finally did clear that hurdle. It has a reduction in colorectal cancer death and mm-hmm. in pooled meta-analytic estimate, uh, it, it crossed the OS bar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was a little more favorable there. Colonoscopy has never been studied. Two ongoing studies. One is that Doug Robertson study, and the other one is the VA study that I think David mm-hmm. Lieberman is running. And so I was supposed to hear about results, I think, any year now. And I think it's colonoscopy versus um, either FOBT or FIT. And I guess mm-hmm. FIT is the immunochemical test. That, right. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason we use it instead of FOBT is not that it has randomized trials power for hard endpoints, but that its test characteristics are at least as good as FOBT. So I think it's a mm-hmm. sort of a safer inference. Yeah, I ended up having a FIT done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because, you know, now they're saying 45 and older, you should get a colo. And I was mm-hmm. 48 when this, I saw, I finally decided man. to see a doctor. I know. I, <laughs> I just turned 49. Can you believe I'm going to be 50? Wow. That's like dead. <laughs> When I was younger, I thought I was very old. But now I know. I think, now oh, I'm like, you're in the prime of your life. I know. That's my second twenties. <laughs> yeah, second twenties. Uh, but yeah, I did it, and and the thing was, uh, you know, came back negative, and it, it did make me feel like, you know what, I'm not going to rush out and get a test that has a non-zero complication rate, even though it's very low. It's still non-zero, and and I was comfortable. And the cool thing is, the way they set it up to collect the stool is so awesome. I'll walk you through it another time. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Well, what okay. do you think about changing the age to 45? I think there should be evidence yeah, before you make those think, changes. Yeah. So what were they basing it on? What evidence were they basing it on? That they're I think usually what they say is people in that age range get this kind of cancer. And that could be true. Yeah, yeah. it is But true. are they better off right. if they get the screening or is there going to be more harm coming of it? Right. And you really have to do a randomized study to show that. They didn't do that. And but how a, you raised another good point is a lot of the cancer screening is based on like mammography breast cancer specific yes, mortality. Let's talk about but that. that's a very misleading 
tagline to the mammography saves lives because it doesn't save lives. It hasn't been shown to save lives. It, in some studies, has reduced breast cancer-specific mortality. Mm. And then, of course, you have this very increased rate of um, false positives and all the things that come from that, the needle biopsies and the you know lumpectomies and... But it hasn't been shown to improve all-cause mortality. So, and that, I think, should be the bar, but the US hasn't been the bar. And even the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force doesn't make recommendations based on an all-cause mortality. But again, if you're taking – these are healthy people. Right. They feel fine. So if you're going to do a test and make people come you know, every year, every five years, every 10 years, and, and there are some risks because there's risks to all those tests, you're clearly not going to make them feel better because they felt fine. So I think you should have to show that you can make them live longer. I think that's really important. And, you know, uh, Jeannie Lenzer and I wrote that thing at BMJ called Why No Cancer Screening Test Has Been Shown to Save Lives, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. This was before the Flexig data. But the argument was exactly what Rita's saying, which is that all of these tests are designed and powered for cause-specific cause death. Cause-specific death. Which means, like, of the people, like, did they die of the thing you were screening them for? But people don't care what they died of. They care that they died or not. <laughs> and so I think it is more meaningful to see is the cause-specific death reduction so big that it can drive a difference in all-cause mortality? Right. Um, and the answer is the evidence is very sparse. I mean, I think Flexig persuaded me finally in, in mm -hmm. meta-analytic estimate. We can talk about CT screening for lung cancer. Yeah, that's because nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. because I've never been persuaded. Um, they had two studies, I mean, two big studies. One was NLST, New England Journal 2009. And that was a study that found a reduct by, by taking people who are heavy smokers and older and scanning them with three you know, helical CTs, I think two years apart in the original study, they had a reduction in lung cancer death, death due to lung cancer, which introduces the problem of like when somebody dies, how do you attribute death? And it's a thorny issue, but they had that. They also had an all-cause mortality reduction in that original publication. But a couple of years later, Paul Pinker had a follow-up in JTO and that all-cause mortality benefit has vanished. Like it's no longer significant. And the difference in lung cancer death wasn't enough to drive an all-cause death. It had to be augmented by a difference in non-lung cancer death, which happened to trend in a favorable way that has since gone away. Um, so I guess I would say I'm persuaded that CT screening for lung cancer finds a lot of lung cancer, definitely does that. I'm persuaded that, you know, you might change the cause of death, um, but I'm not persuaded that you live longer as a result of getting the CT screening. Um, and I know that there are real harms to chasing down nodules in the lung. So let me make sure yeah. I understand yes. it for people that don't operate at a um, <clears throat> T1 nerd, internet nerd, nerd speed. Level. Yeah, nerd level. For, for both of y'all, <laughs> nerds, okay? okay? I consider myself normal. <laughs> yeah, totally normal. <laughs> Never in life has that been a, an accusation hurled at me. Yeah. Um, so when, you, when you're talking mm -hmm. about all-cause yes. mortality versus uh, cancer-specific mortality, say let's, let's talk about mammogram. So the, the mammogram, maybe it reduces the breast cancer-specific mortality, meaning caused by breast cancer. But what we don't know is what does it do to overall – so you could die of a complication of the screening process, something like that. Does it affect overall mortality? Correct. And, and the, that, that's an important distinction because it, it gets to the heart of is this test good for a population? Like – if I had a magic wand, I could say, Rita, you know what? If we do a mammogram, we're going to find that cancer that's going to kill you and it's not going to harm you. If I had a magic wand, I could do that. But we don't have that for a population. So we have to use our best and we're, we're allocating scarce resources and we potentially cause causing harm. So that's why there's that distinction. Did I get that roughly right? Go that's ahead. right. But I think everyone getting the test feels like they're the person that's, that's right. going to be helped. So, and I mean, even the most enthusiastic mammography advocate, I think, would admit it, you're talking a very small percentage at best breast cancer-specific 
cancer mortality reduction. So you're still, you know, more than 95, 98 of the 100 women who are getting those mammograms are not going to have any benefit, mm -hmm. you know, even by the most optimistic estimates. And then, you know, you have all of the harms that come from it. And this mammogram point is it's not even just an individual randomized trials. If you pool every study ever done in history, as uh, Peter Gocha and others have done for Cochrane, there is no significant reduction in all-cause death in the pooled estimate. Mm. We're talking about like 300,000 person years of time. Mm. So, you know, it's huge data, huge power. What does that suggest? I mean, can we say that it does not save lives? I don't right. think so. You just say that like um, whatever benefit is there has got to be very, right. very small if That's it exists. Right. Then you have the problem with, you know, they're not read always accurately. Mm -hmm. And and then you have the problem that we have in so much of American healthcare. Once you've invested in that equipment, so now you've bought this train. very expensive mammography, you know, set up. And, and now there's, you know, tomography and breast ultrasound and M 3D. breast MR. Yeah. And, and once you've invested in all that, yes, and you do the training, it's very hard to go you back. Go back. You know, that's a speeding train that goes down the tracks. It's actually literally a bus. Nobody. They have the mammography bus. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, literally, they pull up in their bus, yeah. and and it, we paired it also these screening campaigns with propaganda. Because mm -hmm. I remember that ACS American Cancer Society ad that said if a woman hasn't had a mammogram, she might need more than her breasts examined. You know, oh, uninformative man. persuasion. Mm -hmm. right. Just get in that van mm -hmm. and right. get that. Mammogram. And they get. I, mean, I go <laughs> to the supermarket, <laughs> and when I'm checking out, they say, "Do I want to add?" a dollar for breast, breast cancer, cancer yeah right. i don't know the they have a store? deal yeah, yeah. yeah. safe way does that yeah but and then there's you know even if you think it is a benefit it's it's in a very defined population like the whole age 40 to 50 is really not well established Disputed. mammography or the test force the u.s preventive services test force says to best balance all the false positives and harms and the benefit of finding a cancer that would be helpful, it should be every two years. Mm. But even at our esteemed institution, which I have great respect for, the radiologist will send patients a note saying, come back in a year for your next mammogram. And Because I've had patients come to me and say, my general internist told me every two years, but I got this letter and they show me you know, the report and it says, come back in a year. And we try talking to the radiologist and they have their own guidelines. Which yeah. they say are not related to the fact that they do these tests themselves. So, I mean, I mean, you make a good point that even though, um, you know, you can debate this all-cause breast cancer specific, the strongest evidence is, you know, uh, 50 to 69. That also means that on the older end, you know, it's very difficult right. to stop. And so we all see 80-year-olds getting mammography. Uh, on the younger end, I think the evidence is much more disputed, especially 40 to 50, even for that sort of surrogate breast cancer specific death. And then the other thing I see in my line of work is – I have a patient with metastatic lung cancer who between visits for chemotherapy, mm -hmm. somebody did a colonoscopy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, who in their right mind would do a colonoscopy on this person who has metastatic right. lung cancer? And it, and then, you know, I thought that was just an anecdote. But I think in JAMA 2009, they published the rate of cancer screening among people with metastatic second, uh, a different cancer. Mm -hmm. And it's non-trivial, particularly for mammography PSA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got to say, so I got this is a shout out for my mom. Happy birthday, mom. No. She's 80. Wow, She's 80 today. Birthday. And she, you know, she got a colo and, and they took out some polyp and they told her mm. come back in, you know, five years. That was at age 75. Uh -huh. She's now 80. Mm -hmm. Now there's all sorts of stuff going on. And she's like, well, now I got to go through this prep and I got to do all this. And I'm like, or you don't, mm -hmm. or you don't. Right. Because what's the incremental value now? Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really, but here's one thing I want to say. There are a lot of people in these fields, like yeah. let's say they're, you know, breast mammographers or they're, mm -hmm. you know, gastroenterologists, whatever it is. Yeah. They all think 
and believe deeply they're doing the right thing. They've seen the cases, yeah, they've seen I the cancers, they they've been trained. That and mm -hmm. so, sure. and, and the, but then on top of that, their salary is dependent on believing a thing. And Upton Sinclair, I think, said, you know, hey, it's very hard to get a guy to believe something when his salary depends on him not believing that. Mm -hmm. And so there, it becomes a very complicated thing of good intentions with bad outcomes. And then folks like y'all who are saying, no, actually do the randomized test. You'll see on Twitter, they want to do randomized controls. Ah, who's got the money for these randomized controls? This is a parachute. You don't test a parachute. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, right? It's a mammogram. Of course, yeah. you're catching a lump uh -huh. early. You're catching a breast cancer early. Why would you? And we're talking about all the reasons why it's not a parachute. Right. You do need to study it. And meanwhile, we spend billions on these tests and their, and their ramifications, all the downstream testing, when we, we won't put that little money up to do the randomized trial in the first place. Ah, and the other thing I'll say is all this over-testing and over-treatment, we're gonna talk about over-treatment as well, is a, is, is a de facto redistribution of wealth mm -hmm. in this country. Because what we've done is we've taken from, from the masses money and we put it towards uh, concentrating it in the pockets of people that are either doing the procedures or making the devices or selling the pharmaceuticals or whatever without a good benefit that we've proven in a trial. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of robbing from the poor and giving to the rich. It, it's almost like you know a medieval kind of system. And so- We call it, that Washington, D.C. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so even that has a, has a social and an equity component to it that people don't, you know, we talk about undertreatment, but overtreatment is a massive equity. Because like, what could you do with this money instead? Hypothetically, exactly. let's say these things didn't work as well as we thought, or maybe they didn't work at all. You could take all that money. And I bet if you put it all into like early childhood education, mm -hmm. uh, prenatal care, early childhood nutrition. Better uh, food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Better school lunches, better, better mm -hmm. farming practices, yeah. all the other things. Right. Uh, it would transform. Right. I mean, think of yeah, all the breast build cancer. Build parks, you... build sidewalks. Right. I mean, let people exercise more. Go outside. Or even redistribute in healthcare. I mean, we still have 35 million Americans who don't have health right. insurance. insurance. Yeah. Right. Or primary the care, only, which is like- you know, developed country where not everyone has insurance. But you've been on the receiving. I mean, yeah. how do you handle these? You know, he's talking about this very interesting point. These doctors who yeah. feel strongly. And I think that, uh, you know, I always say the methamphetamine of being a doctor is you feel like you help someone mm -hmm. and somebody gave you a little bit of reimbursement. Mm -hmm. And so you get addicted to that and I can understand it's addicting and then when you come along and you tell them that what they think they're doing that's so wonderful might either you know not work as well as they think or you know uh, have trade-offs or you know have, it requires some more thought um, you know it's natural that people get upset with you how do you deal with that how do you think about that mm. how do you yeah good question well I mean that that's a tough question and certainly that's why I think sort of getting out of the box or getting out of the FDA I really think we have a responsibility to be much more um, careful about making sure things are actually safe and effective before we mm -hmm. start using them, because it is hard, you know, once something is accepted to then kind of go and think about, is this really something because you believe in it, you think you're doing the right thing. I mean, we all, I think, went into medicine because we wanted to help patients and, you know, heal and, and do the right thing. So some, some people are thoughtful and are willing to reconsider and some people attack the messenger and, you know, that's understandable. When people believe in something, they it's very hard. I mean, sometimes it's almost like a religion. You know, they mm -hmm. doesn't the facts don't, you know, there there's a belief that doesn't seem grounded in science. 
you know, and that's okay for a religion, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's good for medicine. Yeah. Ah, but it's a very human thing. Yeah. We, we operate in this unconscious level and it is belief-based and it's emotion-based. And you're like, you said, all those incentives that re, you know, oh, I saved somebody's life and I made some money. Like I must be doing the Lord's Well, the whole FIFA service system yeah. certainly yeah. encourages, it, it encourages, you know, this, this kind of, and even from the patient point of view, I mean, patients are, you know, the ones that are insured, it's generally until maybe the last few years, it's third-party payers. And so there's very little, you know, they're not seeing, they're why don't you just want to order another test? Mm. And patients have said to me, you know, Medicare will cover, why not order this CT scan? Like, because it's just not good for you. It's not going to help you in any way. Right. But that is the culture we have. Especially now when you're paying so much for insurance, even as an employer, you're, you're paying a component and then your deductible so high, you're like, well, you know, if I, if I don't use this, uh, or I don't get what I my value out of it. You know, there's that component, the consumer right. mindset. But I think it's because people think the tests will help. That's right. So yes. we really need to kind of re-educate re -educate. I mean, our whole medical system, but it is a big uphill. I think, you know- Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. no, no. I was just gonna say, I mean, like, you know, one of the things you mentioned is like, um, I, I think it's the, one of the things like why it's so hard for people to see that it's not the same is that, you know, the body is different than the technology and um, and a lot of people come from the tech industry. You know, we see with these down, just down here on this peninsula, every one of these companies thinks that if you just had a watch that tracked every time you were awake or asleep or, you know, yeah. you, if you had all that information, if you had a wearable that could tell you everything you did, you could leverage that for better health. And of course, they come from a world where many times they take more information and they're able to tailor ads better or whatever the hell they do. I don't know what they do. But I think the body is very much very different than the problem that they're used to dealing with. And they apply that like tech mindset to our line of work. And we know that, you know, we put that Swan Gans in for people for decades and yeah. we got all these pressures from the heart and we couldn't leverage that for better um, uh, sept, uh, shock outcomes. Right. Um, that we've had lots of things that gave us information that we just didn't know what to do with um, because information is is cheap and, mm -hmm. and sort of knowing what to do with it is the hard part. Well, I feel like if you need to have a test to find out you have a disease, maybe you should just not have the test. Like all the bone density scans, <laughs> no, I'm yeah. not that. Yeah. You know, I have so many patients that come and they have osteopenia. I, guess, I know how you can cure it. Stop getting those bone density <laughs> Don't get, yeah, scans. You didn't have a disease You'll before you got the it. test, right? Well, that's an interesting one because, yeah. you know, it's like when I looked at this literature, um, the literature for bone mineral density is that if you have it low and if you take the bisphosphonate, you know, with enough time, we think there's going to be a reduction in fractures that we think are problematic. I mean, that's the evidence that they have. Mm -hmm. But I guess the thing I always struggle with is that um, taking a pill is more than just one end point you're looking at. It's the discomfort of taking the pill, the side effects of the pill. You know, Fosamax obviously wasn't an easy pill to swallow. It's it's all of those endpoints. You don't know much about that. Um, you don't know what it's like, you know, what it means to medicalize people. And so I sometimes think for like some of these things that maybe they need sort of, I hate to say it, it's my usual thing I say, but like really big randomized trials that measure sort of a plurality of outcomes, including mm -hmm. quality of life while you're taking the pill. Right. You yeah, know, and, yeah. and you know, that's a good, the osteopenia thing is yeah. an interesting one. So I have a male family member, um, extended family member who they, they diagnosed with osteopenia or uh, maybe frank osteoporosis, no fractures, no falls, not a very high risk put them on one of these drugs, and I forget which one it was, but it had one of the side effects of esophageal problems. Yeah, yeah. They, they ended up having a stricture oh. 
ended up getting hospitalized, ended up getting dilated. It was an ordeal. They almost aspirated. It was a disaster. So these things come with, a, even just That's therapeutics, right. they come with a big cost. One quick philosophical thing to follow mm -hmm. up on what mm -hmm. Vinay was saying about how we have this mindset that you just tweak something in the body or you measure something and it makes things better. There's a guy, Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychiatrist and a, and a philosopher in Great Britain. He wrote a book called Master and His Emissary about the relationship between the right brain and the left brain, contrary mm -hmm. to whatever the pop culture is. The right brain is actually a more holistic, contextual, emotionally connected and relational kind of way of, uh, it sees the world that way. And this is, and he goes through all the research on why they think this is. Mm -hmm. The left brain probably evolved in relationship to the right, not as becoming its master, being analytical, taking parts, uh, drilling down, but being the servant of the right. Mm -hmm. The right is kind of the master. And what happens over time in human societies is because the left brain does language and mm -hmm. it's able to communicate, whereas the right is kind of silent, uh, it has dominated human culture as culture evolves. So now we become very reductionistic. We see the body mm -hmm. as parts and we try to recreate a whole from the parts. Well, if we tweak this with a statin, this will happen. Mm -hmm. And whereas we've lost this kind of contextual mm -hmm. uh, body-mind kind of continuum thing. So I think it is interesting because it's so much of our, our medicine now is very reductionistic. And I don't think it used to be that way. Like ancient doctors weren't like that. Of course, they had terrible outcomes too, but I'm not sure they were much worse on the things that, that we're talking about now than they are now. Well, that's a very interesting concept, this particularly in light of what we were talking about with you know cancer-specific mortality, right? I right. you know give you something that could reduce your rate of heart disease, but it'll increase your chance of cancer. And is that, are you better off? Because I think you're right. People aren't, like, we don't look at the whole person anymore. We're all these little bits. And yeah. I think people are concerned with how good their quality of life is and then how long they live, but probably not whether they died of, you know, I mean, I think people want to go quickly and painlessly, but they don't care so much whether the mode or what the disease was. Yeah. And I think like these cancer screening tests, I think, uh, and these endpoints, I think one thing people don't know is that Somebody underwent screening a few years ago. Now they present with poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma spread throughout the body. Was that due to breast cancer or not? Is it breast cancer? Mm -hmm. It's not always black. It's not always so clear. There's this adjudication around what is it and is it is it the cause of your death? Or somebody has prostate cancer. Um, maybe they have some spine mats. They're getting, you know, um, testosterone depletion. Then they have present with an MI and die. Mm -hmm. Well, would that have happened without the prostate cancer? Was it attributable to the prostate cancer? How much did it play? What about the androgen deprivation? Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to know. Exactly. And so- being alive or dead is very objective, and that's right. a clean endpoint. And overall survival, I think I put a lot of stock in that endpoint. But when you start to parse death, you suffer from, I mean, people have written about sticky diagnosis and slippery linkage bias, these sort of two biases that could occur. But there are even more biases I think people don't re appreciate. And these endpoints are very nebulous. And I don't think we quantify them. Like the examples you gave, I mean, nobody's recording that these are the things that happened after like um, your relative took Fosamax or that, yeah, yeah. you know, you had that screening test and then you were taking aspirin every day and got an ulcer. That's I mean, right. that, those kind of things don't get recorded anywhere. So That's I think right. there's so many harms of all this well-intentioned screening and testing that we don't record and we don't acknowledge. They, you know what? It's interesting. They don't get recorded anywhere, but so the way you would record them is all-cause yeah. morbidity mortality when, in a trial. That's it, how you catch it. It's the way to pool all these random things. Either all-cause mortality pools all the, all the paths to death and then some metric of like your quality of life. Some, right. mm -hmm. As you said, morbidity. Some morbidity. global metric of morbidity mm -hmm. uh, captures all these diverse paths. But mm -hmm. I know, for instance, in like a lung cancer screening study, um, that many of the studies didn't catch 
distant events. So like you found some lump, mm -hmm. you follow it again on a scan, then you get a needle biopsy. Mm -hmm. It's still inconclusive. Or or let's say you don't get a needle biopsy, but people are watching it. And then finally somebody wants to do a VATS wedge resection or something. And then something bad happens. That bad thing is not always tethered to the initial screening in these tests. Mm -hmm. And so you have published a number of papers in your journal about um, the harms of lung cancer CT screening. Um, oh, I think yeah. the false, the chance of getting a false positive compared to a true positive is like hundreds to one because mm. there's so much stuff, especially if you're a smoker, you live, you know, you have all kinds of stuff in your lungs. Mm. And uh, I was on the Medicare Coverage Advisory Commission when we reviewed the lung cancer screening data, and there were actually four randomized trials. So yes, we uh, only. The task force only looked at the national, um, the one you mentioned, yeah. the national lung screening. That was the only U.S.-based trial. Right. There were three European trials, yeah. none of which found a benefit Correct. to mm -hmm. low-dose CT screening. But they're, yeah, they're very small and, and yeah. But no benefit. And yeah. the other problem I had with the NLST, besides what you mentioned, is that the comparison was to chest x-ray. Correct, which is not standard of care. And chest x-ray had already been shown in a randomized trial to have increased mortality. So why would you have a control group that has That's no dangerous. increased mortality? Because what it did was make CT look better, not right. just because you already knew that getting a chest X-ray was associated with increased mortality, but because all the problems, I think, come from all those incidental findings. Well, now you're doing imaging in all both groups instead of just leaving the control right. group alone, uh -huh. which is what you should have done. So it masks harms. So it masks the harms. Mm -hmm. And I asked the principal investigator who came to the meeting why they used the chest X-ray, and he said, I don't know. Yeah, they had no good explanation. Well, because the last point you are saying, like they did CT versus chest X-ray. I think they had the ongoing PLCL, which had an X-ray arm, and they're hoping that would be positive. Mm -hmm. And so this would be daisy-chained off the positive study. Mm -hmm. But that was, of course, negative, and it never, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't positive. And then they had a new one recently, Nelson, mm -hmm. this uh, European study. It has so many protocol amendments. It's like a redacted document from the White House. You know, it's like you can mm -hmm. barely read this thing. And um, it also doesn't have an all-cause mortality benefit. Um, but to me, I think like the, the one of the sins in this space was um, the evidence, I think, is still quite gray. And I still think I – I just don't know for sure if – a heavy smoker or somebody who quits heavy smoking really does benefit. I mean, I really still sort of am agnostic personally, mm -hmm. but a lot of people got a lot of grant funding to implement. And mm -hmm. and the moment that happens, the, the you know, it's in the last five years, it's really taken off. And so many places have, they don't even talk about, does it work? They talk about improving adherence to the mm -hmm. lung cancer screening protocol. And so I worry. They've probably bought those machines. Yeah, <laughs> think, think of the money, if you yeah. use that money for smoking cessation or prevention oh, yeah. programs, yes. or you know, just give it to the tobacco industry and go, we're going to give you this money so you stop, stop selling, selling tobacco. Uh, it, it would have changed quite a bit. I mean, what, so we- right. so If you want to prevent cancer, smoking cessation is still your number one bank for your buck. Seems to be the thing. And, and heart disease too. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, the IOM had a report out about 10 years ago that Medical imaging was now the number one reversible cause of breast cancer. Oh, because so, of the radiation. Yeah. Oh, wow. Reversible. Right, right, yeah. right. Reversible. Yeah, and, and again, we don't talk much about that. And if you talk to radiologists about this, they, mm. they get very touchy. They're like, well, but you know, yeah. Mm. And ER docs who are covering, have to cover their butts from malpractice because everybody expects a test. I came in with a headache. Well, you got a CT, you got this, you got that. Abdominal scans in young people mm. yeah. um, for abdominal pain that's often you know, from the stress and the anxiety that we've put <laughs> on on kids. And, and and that's not- You're absolutely right. I mean, I think the malpractice litigation needs to be solved. That's because, gotta be figured out. I mean, yeah, I, can, yeah I do pity the, the ER doctor who comes in, somebody has mm -hmm, belly pain. Sure. You yeah, know, one tough. in a million will be something severe. And you, and but, it's a career ending thing for you. Right. Yeah. I mean, they need to be protected to make the right choice, knowing that 
in you know the body's complex and sometimes right. right but there isn't any data that doing more Correct. tests no. protects you from malpractice oh that's a separation oh, yeah that's right. another yeah. thing right yeah yeah, 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 yeah. i guess the best data is the bedside manner protects the bedside you from, manner from malpractice that's right. are you open transparent that's right. and that's the hard part about the er is you know so many docs so many patients coming right. in and out i think they don't they don't have the connection. Ability. Yeah, right. Maybe we should take all that screening money and put it into bedside manner education, <laughs> like empathy or compassion training or, or a meditation retreat or something. Yeah, primary care. How much do we spend on primary care? The last time I checked, it was 5% of our total healthcare spend. And the 95% could arguably really? be the failure of prevention. You see that NYU is doing the right, they, they decided to boost primary care by giving everyone a free medical school. Oh, wow. And yeah. the net result is more- oh, Do they have to become primary care? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they went to ortho anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, just, yeah. I was like, no, they just took the free money, went back and into, got into ortho. Yeah. They're like, yeah, well, I, now I got a little extra, but I could get a lot more extra if I go into ortho. But I do think the reimbursement for primary care is uh, a problem that, I mean, uh, it's just like, um, I mean, I think it's a great field, obviously. And I think yeah. what they do is very important, but the way it's reimbursed, it's not desirable. Mm -hmm. And so they're bleeding. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people ask me, you know, if it weren't for all these metrics like step one score and grades, how will I ever know who to pick as a dermatologist? There's, a, you know, 100 people for every spot. And I was like, but it's a problem as a society. <laughs> that, that, the, there's 100 people for every derm spot. Right. Y'all get yeah. paid too much. <laughs> yeah. you know? I, mean, I mean, like, yeah. you know, yeah. imagine a, a more Sweeney. egalitarian reimbursement. There wouldn't be 100 well, people for every derm yeah. spot. Or, right. you know? uh, yeah. And that's why there's so many melanomas now. Right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> was, yeah. The more derms, the more melanomas. The more you look, the more you find. And, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Aid Adamson has that New England uh -huh. Journal paper with Gil Welch about um, the incidence yeah. of melanoma, explosive, and then the death by melanoma, just flat line. Flat. Right? Yeah. Just Again, like screening. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and and so, okay, so we've talked a lot about diagnostics. Okay. How about mm -hmm. therapeutics? Mm -hmm. uh, do you have- uh, Devices. Uh, yeah. dev devices, mm -hmm. but I'm just curious because this we didn't, uh, statins? Mm -hmm. What's the deal with that? Because people ask me, you know, now you're going to get into trouble. Yeah. Now this is, pro I imagine this is why I get excited about this kind of thing where it's like the conventional wisdom is this is the best drug in the history of drugs. And why, well, maybe we'll start with why, why do people say that about statins? But I guess post MI high cholesterol, somebody had a heart attack and their cholesterol's through the roof. Mm -hmm. Right. Statins. Well, statins are very effective yeah. at yeah. lowering cholesterol. They will lower cholesterol. That number will get better. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so all through my training and my fellowship in the early part of my cardiology career, we had drugs that would lower cholesterol, but they weren't well tolerated, you know, the bile acid. And so statins lower cholesterol, how well tolerated they are, I think is not well defined because the adverse event data collection is not great. And certainly anecdotally, I think everyone knows people that had all kinds of problems, most commonly muscle problems, fatigue or... Uh, memory loss, cognitive impairment associated with statins, but it's hard to get the actual numbers because um, they're not tracked and they're, all the data is industry-sponsored trials and it's secretly held by the cholesterol treatment trialists in Oxford who also get hundreds of millions of pounds from the pharmaceutical industry. That's like 10 bucks. It's a good <laughs> if I'm doing the conversion right. <laughs> it's yeah, a good it's gig like, if you can get it. If you can get it, yeah. Well, Trialist. Get it. Uh -huh. But... I think for primary prevention, so again, for that healthy person who feels good, does, hasn't had a heart attack, the data that you're better off with a statin is weak hmm. to none. Hmm. And I spend a lot of time in my practice stopping statins mm -hmm. and people feel better a and I think are better off because there are a lot of problems, not just that the data is, and again, it's like what we were talking about before, the, the best data will su suggest that 98% of people have absolutely no effect at all from statins and 2% 
will avoid a heart attack, although none will live longer. You know, <laughs> so, and so, and everyone thinks they're going to be one of those two, but that is not a big difference. And there's a lot of, you know, as you were saying, not just the daily sort of toll of taking a pill, which is does have a decrement on your quality of life and the side effects from the statins, but we published studies. There was a study in JAMA Internal Medicine, something like it had gluttony in the title, but oh, they basically great. followed over 10 years. They looked, used the NHANES data and looked at people that took statins and people that didn't take statins. And the people that took statins were gained more weight and became more sedentary over those 10 years. And it wasn't a randomized trial. I right, agree. Always fair, randomized yeah. trials best. But one could plausibly think that because you're taking what some people might think is a magic pill, you're mm. not paying attention to what you eat mm. and you're not exercising as much. I mean, so there are all kinds of other costs. And, you know, I think what you said earlier, I mean, to redirect the money towards, you know, healthy eating, towards, you know, I mean, everyone says, oh, I can't get people, you know, to eat right or to lose weight or to exercise more. But I don't think we give ourselves as a profession enough credit. I think what your doctor tells you, you're much more likely to listen to than what your partner tells you or someone, you know, some random. And that we can't shirk our responsibility to improve health by working on lifestyle just because the drugs are so easy, you know, they're perceived as easy. And let's face it, it's a $20 billion a year industry. Yeah. There are a even lot of people generic. that have, even though- <laughs> Yeah, even though some are generic. Well, you, some are generic. Some are generic, right, not yeah. all. But you know, what's interesting to me about it is, it's like so many things in medicine that, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody comes in with huge MI and their total cholesterol is like 240, mm -hmm. everyone's like, okay, well, we have, you know, lots of evidence that that's a life-saving intervention in that scenario. But you're talking about the low risk end of the spectrum. And I think we all know some cardiology fellows who they're mm -hmm. like 32 years old and their LDL is 110 and they mm -hmm. take a statin. They're on a statin. They're on a statin. And I guess I ask myself like, mm -hmm. you know, what evidence could one marshal? And to be honest, it's very uh, sparse, especially that age group. I mean, the 30s, even, really in, the, even in the industry-sponsored randomized trials, there are very, very few people in those ages. And the other thing I think is I look at these old these studies, and there many are very old, mm -hmm. very, very old. And we saw with aspirin that, you know, that sometimes some of these things are in need of reappraisal. I actually wonder if maybe an interesting thing for NHLBI to do would mm -hmm. be a very, very large randomized trial of health, of primary prevention, where you could actually look for, you know, does it make sense mm -hmm. for, I mean, you know, you know, 30 year olds who take statins mm -hmm. and what are they going to take it for, for 40 more, for 50 more years? That's the question. <laughs> and I, but well, I mean, what can they hang their hat on? But how in your mind is it different than hypertension? Because mm -hmm. you, you also know a 35 year old who'll take uh, antihypertensives and you right. have less criticism of that. And that's. Because I thought, in my, I thought the evidence was stronger for hypertension. For hypertension. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think now the problem with hypertension is again, and it happened yeah. with cholesterol yeah. too. It's happened with everything. We've started lowering the bar for what we call hypertension. So now, you know what? Now there's all pre-hypertension, you know, pre-diabetes. I mean, as my colleague Deborah Grady says, we're all pre-dead. Yeah, <laughs> pre-dead. You know, you, and if you, as Gilwell says, I think you know, there's no healthy person anymore, just someone who hasn't had enough tests. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But it's kind of sad, you know, because I don't think we're thinking about what, would, like I just saw, I get the American Heart Association alerts and one came yesterday because they've now rebranded hypertension where it was 140 over 90 and some of the European groups use 150 over 100. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. What is it? And now? for the AHA, well, optimal is one twenty over seventy, which nobody, you yeah. know, over fifty. You know, I mean, not many people are going to have when they're septic. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they included them in the trial. <laughs> or if you wanted to get there by working on lifestyle, but to right. get there by working on pills has a lot of side effects. Yeah, that's and another problems. important difference, which is that like it might very well be the case that somebody who naturally is one ten over fifty mm-hmm. is doing better than somebody one thirty nine over eighty nine. Right. But the question is, if you have a fifty one year old healthy person one thirty nine over eighty nine, do they benefit from being prescribed chlorthalidone exactly. or lisinopril? Exactly. And I'm trying to think if I could hang my hat on anything. I mean, we do know from like the early hypertension studies, older people with sky high blood pressure, huge benefits in all cause. Absolutely. 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 Like high vec, et cetera. Right. But then as you drift, this is the, isn't this the, the, the universal truth of medicine? Right. You take a very high risk population with a huge absolute risk. You give them an intervention, have a big absolute risk reduction, but then you get greedy and you extrapolate to younger people, Safety lower degree. risk. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Earlier, longer. And right. then you get to a place where you really don't have a lot of credible data. Mm-hmm. Right. That's exactly the what The two-year-old on like four antihypertensives. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've debated <laughs> people on uh-huh. statins in, the, in children. I'm like, yeah. think of the effects of taking these kids uh, and, and testing their cholesterol, putting them on right. statins, and then instead of just emphasizing healthy eating. And, and that's the other thing about hypertension that we yeah. really don't uh, talk much about. Oh, well, the, the lifestyle changes are way too hard. They never work. Just, just go right to the pill. You know, you tell them, you give them lip service. You should probably eat this, that, and do mm-hmm. that exercise. Doesn't, doesn't work. And they're like, well, all right, here you go. Ah, it's actually a major change in mm-hmm. how you even approach the world because hypertension is so much, I think, an epiphenomenon right. of our own uh, dysfunction in terms of how we eat, how we, how we feel, all these other things. And treating that requires a, a total frame shift of perspective, which we ought to focus on. Like, like you're saying like better sleep, less coffee, less alcohol. Less stress. Uh, lose weight. Lose eat, weight. Eat less and eat better food. Eat better food. Yeah. Uh, you know, and for some people, maybe it means a certain type of diet. Yeah, meditation, oh, yeah. definitely. I've noticed this. So this was fascinating mm-hmm. to me when, you know, pre, pre I, I went on this meditation retreat before the retreat, and this is an end of one and it's stupid and it's observational. Because uh, I know you're going to be like, well, yeah, you're going to randomize these people to meditation retreat or placebo. Well, you know, that's not. A, a, it's not you could do it. Yeah, you could do it because the placebo yeah. could be you go on a vacation. Right, right. Yeah, but where you, you're not. But you don't, but you don't do mindfulness. <laughs> that's right. You right. don't you do that. Have a lot of people signing up for this. Trial. I know. This right. is the best trial. You either ever. go on a vacation or a meditation. <laughs> or a meditation retreat. Either yeah. way, you get a week where you don't have to yeah. answer emails. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, Thank God. and you know, oh, prior that's it. just unplugging for a week could be. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. When I when I when I came back because I have a blood pressure machine at home because occasionally when I get stressed, oh. my pressure rises. Sure. It's right. very real. How high does it go? Oh, it can go up to like you know 160, 170. One time I did a thing where they had a non-invasive blood pressure measurement and it was part of a show we did. And during the show, I was like 190 systolic. But you were on, you were, uh, you were, jazzed we were live. the show. We right were live. It was all the endorphins. And, but I felt fine. Mm-hmm. I was like, you yeah. know, but then I realized, oh, unconsciously, mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure to doing a live show. So normally at home, you know, I'm like, you know, 120, maybe mm-hmm. at the worst, it'll be 130. Lucky. After this retreat, I came home and I would just get into these mind states for a good week. I was like, 100 over wow. 60 yeah. consistently. It's, it's very powerful. So you, it's a biofeedback thing. Yeah. So, you know, all the money we spend on these pills, you have these other ancillary benefits of, of calmness and, and and mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, I think like what you're talking about is that like to, it's, it's almost you have to have total lifestyle change 
You know, compared to what the average American eats, right. the average American sleep habits, eating habits, so much processed food, so mm. much just terrible food. Mm. Um, the level and of really, anxiety. it's changed and gotten so much worse yes. in the last yeah. thirty to forty years. And people say, "Oh, we can't make changes," but we didn't used to be like this. Right. So I'm hopeful we can get back to you know where we don't have vending machines everywhere and food everywhere and all the processed foods and people. And then, you know, that aspirin data, which was like, I, I, you know, before like the three recent trials, I was, and finally the USPSTF has, you know, rescinded their baby aspirin recommendations. But um, the older studies from the 80s were rather persuasive, but it was a group of thin, heavy smokers Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, often had high blood pressure. Um, And now it's a group of overweight diabetics uh, or maybe pre-diabetics who don't smoke as much. And all the aspirin studies have really sort of um, flip-flopped. It's totally different effects. Right. Well, the point you were making, I mean, if you take a very high-risk group, it's much easier to show Show benefit than Uh, taking, you know, and luckily we have gotten overall healthier. Although I do worry now that the next generation is going to be the first to not live as long as seeing that pivot. Some of that is this uh, overdose deaths and other things that are impacting life. But these are, again, these are epiphenomenon of our shift in culture to madness, I think. Mm -hmm. And again, that this shift towards the left brain is an interesting thing. Because I think diet is one of those things, like it's very left brain to go, you know what? I'm on the go. I'm going to have me this processed Lunchable and this. And if we just, you know, we put some technology behind food and we can really make it tasty and people really want to eat You know what somebody told me recently, like in France or Italy, it is, it is against the law for you to eat your lunch at your workstation. Mm. Did you hear this? I, I didn't I know that. that. Yeah, you have to go oh my gosh. and yeah. eat the proper lunch. Have, and you, have you been you have to, And you have to enjoy it. No, no. Well, I, I think I've been there. Oh, of course I've been there. I've been there to Rome before and uh, yeah. I went to Italy yeah. uh, 10 years ago with my uh-huh. wife. Yeah. And uh, you know, I've always had struggle with weight all the time because I love to eat. Like I have no self-control. Uh-huh. So we go to Italy and I eat like a pig. <laughs> you're walking everywhere and the food oh, yeah. is all fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lost five pounds. Really? Yeah. Mm. Despite? Despite wow. and having the best food in my life. And I was like, yeah. okay, this is a thing. And you right. see them and you're like, dude, these guys know how to do it. Yeah, right. their whole lifestyle is built. Whole lifestyle yeah. is well, They used to say the French paradox, you mm-hmm. know, they eat. The rich cheeses, but yeah. small portions. Yeah, small portions. Right? Not the big portions. And, and they're active. Day, yeah. Right. Well, I, I recently was in Houston, Texas, and I saw the American paradox. Which was, <laughs> the, the cars were big yeah. and the food was bigger. The food was bigger. Oh, it was big. It was big. It's a concordant paradox. Supersize yeah. that. Supersize, yeah. Oh, it was big. Yeah. Well, but you know, so th- these are these are big systemic issues that yeah. we're trying to put a medical Band-Aid on with, you know, uh, 20% of our GDP going into it and then coming out with these outcomes that aren't great. Medical devices is another space, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh my gosh, if a little technology is good, a lot's better, right? Yeah, that's right. And so few of medical devices go through clinical trials before they get on the market. And I mean, just like the move in oncology and in drugs, when there are trials, they're now often surrogate markers. So you're taking these very high-risk devices and you know improving a lab marker. Yeah. I don't think people realize that there isn't data that you're actually better off because of medical devices. And then there's a big rush to get them on the market, get them approved quickly. And then there's very little or no resources on the post-market side. And so we don't follow. I mean, you were talking about registries and in our most advanced technological country in the world, our medical registries are just appalling. Yeah. You know, we, we don't know what happens to people when they leave the hospital. We have never put the unique device identifiers on medical yeah. devices that mm-hmm. were supposed to be, occur 10 years ago. We, we don't track people. We don't know. And so people say, oh, well, you know, the device, maybe we don't know if it helps you, 
but it doesn't harm you. Well, it's like we never looked. We don't yeah, collect we the don't data. Know, right? So it's very easy to say it doesn't harm you because we don't collect that data. And what's going on with <laughs> things like Eshore and Impella? What, oh. what happened with these things? Eshore, well, you guys covered a lot. in Eshore, have you seen um, The Bleeding Edge? I have. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I saw it. I, saw it. I did a show on it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, that Eshore story was... It's scary because yeah. there were those women so for, were having uh, terrible contraceptive, right? Uh, IUD a contraceptive or, yeah, that was that. causing a lot of problems, scarring in the uh, uh, fallopian tubes and mm. things like that. You exactly. terrible stuff, and lots of women who have stories about it and have support groups online and all of this. And of course, nobody believes women, so nobody's listening to them, and and it was just really bad. Exactly. Yeah. And what was they the were complaining that, yeah. to the company, mm. they were complaining to the FDA. Mm. Nobody listened. The other thing that I found quite disturbing, I guess they had a big Facebook group, like you said, I think 30,000, and they mm. all had complaints that they said they had reported to the company. But if you looked at the adverse event reporting at the Not FDA, there. they yeah. weren't there. Interesting. And you know, it's you report to the company, but then the company decides whether it's reportable or not. Right. And so no one really knows even for really the, the system? report. Yeah, that's the, the company system. gets the first? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, so we've kind of uh, we biased this towards the profit making side of this. Yeah, right, and away from safety. I mean, those poor women. Right after that documentary came out, there was a recall on Mm -hmm. Ushara. But I mean, how many devices like that are there Mm -hmm. that we don't even know about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Theranos, we were talking about earlier. I mean, how many? I mean, they happen to have a Wall Street Journal reporter who went after. If if he hadn't been there, that company be you know the multi the unicorn. Was the, there's these vaginal resurfacing lasers that yeah. came in the news a while back, and you know women were getting you know for incontinence and things mm-hmm. like that, and they don't help at all, and they cause problems and scarring, and I mean, I think laser and vagina don't <laughs> go together. Just <laughs> well, you have the morselator. Oh yes, yeah, that was a fiasco. Right. That was another one. Yes, yeah. that uh, they did the hysterectomy. They put in a morselator, and right. uh, and it often kind of grinds things up, and it could seed like leiomyosarcoma, et cetera. Right, the cancer would spread. Right, and uh, there's that doctor at Brigham, Amy Reed. I think she was uh, unfortunately passed away from it recently. Exactly. But I guess mm. it, it needs it, re- devices needs a two prong solution. One is the level of evidence for a device should be at least as good as a drug. In right. fact, if arguably it should be higher right. because I, before I have right. a piece of titanium that exactly. I can never get out of my body, well, exactly. It should be higher. It should be like randomized control trials powered for clinical endpoints and if you can't say the companies don't have the money mm-hmm. I, I visited Minneapolis mm-hmm. I see how rich they are you know they're they're drenched in money mm-hmm. and that state especially <laughs> um, and then the second part is that even if they had randomized data supporting benefit they need exquisite tracking like mm-hmm. like at any moment you should be able to go to the manufacturer and say tell me every single person who's got your product in their body right now right? and if they can't tell you that they're out of business you know yeah, I think yeah. it needs a but obviously the appetite to regulate them is low even uh, somebody who I admired a lot, Al Franklin, was unwilling mm-hmm. to um, mm-hmm. go up against them because he's from Minnesota, which has a lot mm-hmm. of money from them. Oh, Al Franklin, yeah. yeah who mm-hmm. I thought was, a, you know, always mm-hmm. did a good job on, on some of these issues. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's the tough part. You know, we're now, I don't know, 15 years, I think, you know, um, no, actually, you know, 15 years or 20 years after these issues have been talked about forever. And mm-hmm. as you say, no unique device identifier and no reforms to the structural failures well, of FDA. I think patients could... Could do something mm-hmm. because if people realize that, you know, they're they're being harmed. I mean, I don't think people are putting it together. We're not reporting it. We could do a lot better. But I'm hopeful that, you know, if patients understood the harms that come, you know, we had better reporting. 
And because now, even for recall devices, people often will they'll walk around like you said. Devices yes. are not like drugs. You can't just stop taking them when you find out they've been recalled or they're ineffective. Now it's in your body, right. so you're either going to have a risky operation to remove a risky device, or you're going to live the rest of your life with, as patients say, a time bomb ticking in my chest like because your defibrillator metal, lead right. got yeah. recalled or, or your metal metal, 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 metal hip, hip. metal metal right. hip, right? Yeah, that was in Bleeding Edge as well. I think talked about. Yeah, yeah, which was, and I remember, you know, I'm on the California Technology mm. Assessment Forum, and when we did the evidence review for the metal-on-metal metal hips, which were being marketed as being safer than That's the right. titanium hips, and, so, and for that reason, like you said, now they were going to go into younger patients because we didn't have to only, like, wait till things got really bad. You could do it earlier. No, oh, wonderful. You know? And and. and we looked yeah. at the evidence. There wasn't any. There weren't any trials that showed any benefit for the metal on metal. But an orthopedic surgeon from Southern California came up and said, "These were the best things since sliced bread. They're great. He uses them in all his patients." And I said, "Well, how can you know that if you didn't have a randomized trial that they're better?" And he looks at me and says, "Dr. Edberg, it would be unethical to do a randomized trial. They're so good. <laughs> it's a parachute. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well." A few weeks later, they were off the market, yeah. Because, yeah. but not because of our data, because no. the British who have a registry and the Australians who had a registry showed a 40% incidence of reoperation. And then you have all the metal and titanium um, getting into the bloodstream yeah, and all right. kinds of problems. We're getting cobalt. 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 Yeah, the cobalt. Right. Yeah, right. But, but they never, yeah, cobalt. Yeah. But they never had a trial in the first Correct. place That's to get them on the market. But, you know, this is what people say, like somebody would, who's against, uh, you know, our point of view would say something like, oh, you know, if we lived in your world, it would drastically slow innovation. Right. And I was like, well, only slow innovation if you're making garbage. If you're making right. something that works, exactly. it'll be right there. I mean, you can't call everything new innovation. I mean, to me, yeah. innovation means you were better off with it. That's right. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's innovative. I think we have to define innovation as that you are better off with this than you would have been without it. That's right. Or with the older, you know, approach to it. Then I'm all for innovation, but just saying everything new is innovative mm -hmm. is is a smokescreen to hide behind, and I think that's how innovation is used now. Yeah, I think you're right. It's that left brain creeping in. Yeah. There's this thing called innovation. Look, you want this? You want this? You it's want this like little piece? VPZD show. It's you a know. new show, but is it innovative? Uh, <laughs> is it innovative? The answer yeah? is possibly. <laughs> Leave a review if you like. Leave a review. Yeah, right. <laughs> Randomize him. You know, I think they. I'm, I'm happy to be randomized. If somebody really wanted to say you randomize uh, like our podcast yeah. versus uh, some other a control medical podcast, for, and then they judge them on like ability to critically appraise things. Oh, I'm happy to go. You mm. would be happy. I'd be like, I don't know. Uh, I may even be worse than control. <laughs> halted for futility. I, I, yeah, exactly. I say things like go meditate for blood pressure. They'll halted, be like uh, halted for futility. <laughs> <laughs> Trial was stopped early due to futility. So. One question for you, though, in your practice, you know, because mm -hmm. you're a practicing cardiologist as well as a professor, as well as a researcher and all of the stuff that you're passionate about. How do you manage patients? Like, are you still like conceding to whatever their requests are if they're saying, oh, I want this statin or I want this medical device or I want this procedure, I want this test? How do you manage that uh, in practice? Is it developing a relationship? Like, how, how do you put the rubber to the road on that? That's a great question. And it, you know, some patients come to me, as I said, really, because they want to get off statins, for example, and they've read you know, something I've written on that topic and think that would be good. It's a selection. But some, I mean, I had a patient recently that, you know, was telling me that he gets his small 
cholesterol particles checked every mm. 90 days. Right, and so I the thought, small oh. ones. Though. It's just the tiny ones that yeah, the small stick particles inside. That, that's yeah. the right, one you want to sometimes your overall numbers could be good, but that's because you haven't done enough tests. What is this, lipoprotein? Lipoprotein? Look at those oh, little ones. Yeah, <laughs> okay. And so what you told him, you don't need to do it. Well, it's, that's a very difficult conversation because, I mean, yeah, but I, I have, you know, I've been practicing for a long time, like almost 40 years, I think. And at this point, I realize I can't order a test that I don't think is right for that patient. And so I will, you know, take the time and try to explain why I don't think that this is in good practice. If someone still, you know, wants to have that test, they probably go see another doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So you do it that way. I was once at a conference and- um, I mean, I don't know. I hope that they would listen and be persuaded, but, you know, I mean, there are people that definitely, uh, I think- you know, if they want to still have their test, that's American medicine. You can do yeah. that. You have the choice to do that. I was once at a conference and uh, I met somebody who was like from California. And this person was like, you know, doc, you know, because I did a talk on like medical reversals and things that we shouldn't be doing. And he's like, oh, you, you might find this story interesting. He's like, I was once about to do this medical procedure and uh, I was going to do this procedure. And as he told me about the procedure, I was like, oh boy, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise that. And then he's like, then I saw this doctor, Dr. Rita Redberg. And I told her I was going to do this. And then she just told me, Why? And I decided not to do it. <laughs> and I was like, well, she was Wait, right. <laughs> so doc, patients sometimes trust their doctors yeah, when yeah. they explain and explain, they spend the time. And, 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 you know, you asked him why. But um, that's great. But I mean, I think it, it takes a that's deft a touch story. because it's not, you're not just um, relying on bedside manner. You're also relying, you're going against what somebody's intuition mm-hmm. and what lots of advertisements that's have taught right. them. And the intuition. And the thing about the small cholesterol particles, because I, I, you know, I, I'm mm. kind of familiar with this community online. You know, like mm. the ketogenics guys and the low carb guys. And don't offend them. Don't offend no, them. No, no. They're wonderful. <laughs> they come for us. Exactly. Oh, and, and all of them have abs. Because there's, Six there's no abs. carbs. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. But, but um, there is this feeling that a citizen scientist can do these measurements, can read something online, and can have take control of their health by doing this stuff. So they're in, they're motivated innovation is good. Yeah. What they what we need to do is go, okay, well then let's get data on this. Is right. this actually helpful to measure this? And here's the reasons it might not be. Right. And, and be in partnership with them. So that's one thing because I've noticed there's that community of people that are very they're hyper into self quantum, you know, they're taking their well, own blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well yeah. even I mean, I'll have these talks with patients about, you know, really if you want to be healthier and reduce your risk of heart attacks, we just have to work on whole food, you know, Mediterranean style diet and regular activity and not smoking. And they then they'll say, okay, that sounds great. And then should I check my cholesterol in three months? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and what I try to say, you know, I, I don't think we should focus on cholesterol at all. I mm. think we should focus on, you know, your lifestyle. The whole idea of focusing on cholesterol is to get people on statins. There is not another reason to check their lipids. Yeah, yeah. It's really a, not a very poor indicator of your cardiac health. But they want that. They want yeah. that positive feedback or feedback, negative feedback. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like we want the likes and clicks. Heck you know? yeah. <laughs> That's why we got Rita Redberg on <laughs> yeah. the show. Yeah, we're going to get the big <laughs> likes. Smash button. that like smash, button. Yeah. And, and share it. Uh, yeah, if you're a medical <laughs> device maker, smash that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> subscribe. Smash, you want a randomized trial. <laughs> what I want to ask you, I have a question for you. I've always been curious. Um, you know, they always have these um, lists of the most influential physicians in healthcare. Mm. Okay. And I don't actually don't know off the top of my head if I've ever seen your name on such a list. Mm-hmm. But they're often it, pay to play. Oh, I see. Yeah. Maybe that's why I don't Some see of them it as are, often. Yeah. But I think it should be. 
Mm-hmm. See, because I've always thought of you as one of the most influential people in medicine, but I don't think people will think of you that way because um, your personality is not brash. You're not mm. loud. And mm. I think people think of loud people more than that's why they think of me. You know, <laughs> I got that going for me. Do you me. think yeah. it's also because she's not male? Um, yes, I think so. Maybe mm. that also plays a role, but mm. maybe also like women, maybe, you know, have a different style of communication because you and I will just be like, and that gets this people smash the button one way or the other. Yeah. That might be part of it. Whereas if I were going to see a doctor, I'd want to see Dr. Redberg. who's like, look, I'm your partner in this. Yeah. And I think you're also behind the scenes. So I guess what I was trying, Mm -hmm. what I was going to, yeah. I mean, like, um, because you have been the editor of gem internal medicine for, um, now what, 12 years, Mm -hmm. 13 years. Yeah. And, um, and your journal, you the, by 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 being at the journal, you took it in a lot of different places. So I think you were the first to talk about um, less is more medicine mm. when people didn't talk about it. And you published so many papers. I remember, you know, papers by Gil Welsh about the mammogram paper um, and papers on like if my cancer is detected by mammography, what were the odds my life was actually saved by that? And I think Welsh puts it at thirteen percent or something like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these things. And so, I don't know, do you feel like you have shaped this conversation? Because I think fifteen years ago you couldn't talk about too much medicine. We published your AAA. Ah, yes, that poor gentleman. <laughs> that poor gentleman. So oh, that's long ago, that 2012. I, that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Wow. For a lot of patients who are thinking about AAA screening. Mm. Um I, I feel like yes, and I have to, you know, I have a group of editors that work with me and they're great, you know, and I mean Deborah Grady and Mitch Katz and Robert Steinberg and a lot all my editors are can but I do think that, and that was our goal, I mean, was to get that conversation started, was for people to start thinking about, is there a case of too much medicine? Is there cases where more health care is actually not good for you? And it actually started when Deborah um, Grady and I were talking about the 2009 U.S. Preventive Services mammography recommendations, mm-hmm. where they said that women between the ages of 40 and 50 um, – it should be an individualized decision. And they got slammed by people that said they didn't care about women. The government was trying to ration health care. I mean, a lot of – and we were trying to figure out why. they. All they did was review the data, and the data clearly showed there was no benefit, and therefore they made this recommendation. And we thought, well, no one's talking about the harms, so mm-hmm. we have to message better that when there's no benefit, all you're left with is the harms, and all tests have harms. You know, we had one of the first – cases we ran in that less is more series was a woman in her late 40s who was a little overweight was starting on some kind of physical exercise regimen and then started getting a little pulling in her right chest so you wouldn't really think that was heart disease but she went to a doctor because we have all these campaigns Mm. about for women that any you know any pain anywhere could be a heart problem so she went to a doctor he pushed on her chest it hurt again that makes very likely it's not your heart. <laughs> right. But then he said, just to reassure you, we'll get a coronary calcium scan. Oh, and it had calcium. So mm. they couldn't. So then she ended up getting an invasive coronary angiogram where she had, and her arteries were normal, but Basically. they dissected, oh, they dissected her, her left her. main oh, coronary oh, artery. Oh, my God. So now she had to go to emergency bypass surgery. Oh, my God. She got the bypass surgery um, she took all the dual antiplatelet and all the trauma that that is. She still um, uh, the grafts closed, so she had to get a stent. Oh, 
then even with the dual antiplatelets, the stent thrombosed. Oh, my oh. God. And she ended up with a cardiomyopathy, an injection oh. fraction of 30%, and a heart transplant. Oh, no. All because he, someone with good intentions just couldn't say, no, you know, it's because you're working out and that's not a heart problem. Got a test just to reassure her. Dude. And the thing is, the thing is, for every, you have that that you know yeah. about. Yes. There's like right. 20 others. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Because we've all seen it as a hospital. Right. So I've seen that. Oh, yeah. This and is terrible when we story. published that story, you know, all the CT people mm-hmm. wrote in and said they didn't interpret the test properly. Uh, like, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But it didn't, it you didn't need the matter. test. You didn't need the test. Correct. You didn't That's need the, the test. Yeah. <laughs> when you push on the chest and it reproduces the pain, I right. thought that was already great a great sign that it's song. not yeah. the heart. But you know, you yeah. feel for you feel for the ER guy because probably he was nervous. Maybe the the way the interaction was, he was worried that if something was this tiny possibility that it was missed. Because we are told, you know, mm-hmm. women present differently. Even if you push on it, maybe it's a distractor. Who knows? But you, gosh, man, where it it this is a terrible story. Right, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible story, and I feel so much sympathy for this person who's now on what lifelong immunosuppression with a right. transplanted heart. Right. Um. But in some ways, it's like the quintessential illustrative. Example, yeah. how a little quest for reassurance mm-hmm. um, couldn't hurt, uh, hurts a tremendous amount. Now, now I imagine we're going to get pushback from physicians because mm-hmm. even- What will they say? Yeah, they, they might say, well, now what you're doing is mm-hmm. you're telling patients to be terrified of what we do. And when they do need something, they're going to be, it's going to, there's going to be so much stigma. They're not going to want these interventions that are appropriate. And how does a patient know what's appropriate and what's not? And I think really, honestly, it's a mix of like, we have to educate ourselves. We have mm-hmm. to understand like, hey, this stuff, it, 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 what we do sometimes causes a lot of harm and we need to tease out what does and doesn't. We need to recondition ourselves and then we need to educate patients. Yeah. And patients, maybe maybe one of the lessons is not to be instantly dismissive of the doctor, but to right. ask tough questions. Ask like, the question. what would happen if I do nothing? And and uh, you know, and what is the and what is the basis of your opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, and why are you saying this? And, and, and what can I look forward to, ben- you know, how right. will this benefit me? Right, and that's not easy to do. I mean, uh, even authority figure. We have physician colleagues who, you know, have been pa- we're, we're patients too, and they go see a doctor, and the doctor is recommending tests. That I mean, I've, I've had a physician who was on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force when PSA was a grade D recommendation, and told me their GP ordered PSA on them, <laughs> I mean, and that they just went along with the it because they didn't want to fight with the doctor. Wow. So Absolutely, it's very and even as, very as like you know, if I'm a family is getting into health problems, I'm not antagonistic to yeah. the doctors taking care of them, even if I disagree with of what course, they're doing, yeah. because it first of all, there's a superstitious component, like oh yeah. my god, you know, if I now if I go and do this and something happens, then it's you know, I, there's a superstition. Oh, I see, see. It's right? On, it's on you then. It's yes. on you and I think a lot of patients have that superstition. Like, here's this shamanic figure, the mm-hmm. physician, and and I, I, if I go asking questions, you know, I know I have family members who are scared, who are physicians, who are scared to go against their doctor's racks because they're like, well, but but you know, you know, you know how it is. Yeah, like, yeah, I do. A lot of harm gets done <laughs> when you don't ask the question. You said one thing: ask the doctor. What happens if I do nothing? Yeah, and, and mm. why do you, and, and why do you right. think that would happen? And and that I I think that goes mm. for dentists. I think yeah. it goes for anybody. Especially. Like oh, you're going to have yeah. this thing done. Okay, what happens if I do nothing? Right. And you know, and then there's another side to the coin, which is that well, you know, we shouldn't be putting people in these bad situations. Right. So that's why we have a U.S. Food and Drug Administration to protect people from making choices exactly. because they're not able to know everything that yeah. we know. And you know, I guess I'm happy to take the heat for saying this. I think they've failed so many times in the last 20 years, and they're only going in the wrong direction. They're addicted to pharmaceutical money, their number one source of revenue. The 
pipeline between working there and working for the companies is a is a door that revolves so fast it'll hit you before you go. You know, it really is. It's like every single former FDA commissioner now works or consults for. Steve Hahn works for that, you know, venture capital firm that has Moderna rights. And we published that paper in BMJ on the the, the reviewers going there. Um, mm-hmm. And and I guess like it's the role of the FDA and CMS to protect mm-hmm. people um, from these choices. Health insurers too, but unfortunately health insurers, you know, ever since the Affordable Care Act capitated the revenue, I think they no longer have an incentive to bend the cost curve downwards. It's actually mm-hmm. to grow healthcare spending. So I never mm-hmm. find them very interested in doing these things. Um, and then I think it's about on academics too. Because like academics are often easily seduced, as you say, by the newest thing, when we're the ones who are supposed to be saying, hey, let's get a little bit more evidence before we launch this, you know, CT screening for lung cancer campaign, Mm. I think, for instance. Mm. Right. But there's always a lot of excitement and a lot of buzz around the newest technology, even without any evidence that it actually helps. So, yeah, there's our whole system is just structured to do more and not to say, is this better for patients? Yeah. To do things to people, not necessarily for them. That's how exactly. it's paid for and incentivized. And we get the system that we incented. Which is very interesting because like, if you know, go back to your point about the redistribution of wealth, which is like a lot of older people are struggling. You know, we were talking earlier about like, you know, post-hospitalization convalescence is a lot longer and harder than people think. Mm-hmm. And in this system that spends $4 trillion on healthcare, you want to get somebody to come to somebody's house and help yeah. them. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. Right. Good luck. We pay those people minimum wage. Right. Yeah. yeah. But why does health insurance, it'll always reimburse for the stent or the metal hip. Yeah. Right. It won't reimburse for the person to come to your house. And it's because mm-hmm. the stent concentrates wealth in the hands of shareholders. Mm-hmm. And the person coming to your house disperses wealth to a lot of middle-class people getting a job. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody takes government money and disperses it to lots of people. Oh, they take government money and consolidate in the hands of the rich people who control government. That's real progressive thinking, right? Is is doing something that actually helps a lot of people, yeah. is economically vibrant, and doesn't give rich people poor people's money. Yeah, right. That that's that's what we ought to be talking. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It is an issue that right. that, that and then it it. it because one thing we didn't mention when we talked about uh, solutions is we talked about re-educating doctors, re-educating patients. What about the legislative situation and the policy wow. situation? And you spent time with the Senate. Yeah. But even getting sort of the social determinants of health, I mean, we have unhoused patients that you, know, you can treat. I can put a $50,000 device in them, right. but right. I, I can't get them housing. Can't get right. them even right. And housing yeah. would be much better for their health right. than this $50,000 device that they didn't need. There you go. That, yeah. I mean, that's the... I think that's a that's one of the paradoxes. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> let's talk about aducanumab just for a second. That's maybe oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, talk about it. I mean, <laughs> talk about know. a failure of the FDA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what, ha- is, what is aducanumab? Aducanumab is, uh, and if you forget it, you need to take it because it helps your memory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking for a friend yeah. in my audience. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think we talked about it once before. It's, uh, it's an Alzheimer's drug. It's supposed to target amyloid. Um, in studies, it, for people who have amyloid, um, it can reduce the amount of amyloid they have. But of course, people who have Alzheimer's, they don't care about amyloid. They care about living and functioning and daily activities and those sorts of things. And it has, you know, really no credible evidence that it actually improves those endpoints. Um, and yet, despite what, t- two trials, some conflicts between the trials, some post hoc analysis and recommendation from FDA not to approve it wa- and, and an advisory group that said don't approve it, it was undermined and approved nonetheless. Exactly. Yeah. Two trials that were abandoned for futility. Yeah, for futility. <laughs> so the company said, well, you know, clearly not going to meet our endpoint. We're not going to do this anymore. 
But they went back then and, and mined the data. Well, evidently, the FDA worked with them to <sighs> go back and mine the data. And there's ongoing, like, ongoing investigations looking investigation. at data. Um, and, and the reason it matters is that, I mean, I think like as somebody who follows the agency very closely, I wasn't surprised that they found a drug that didn't work and approved it anyway. They like to do that. That's it's common. It's common. Right. I was surprised, but I think the reason it got attention was the, the market size, you know, we're talking about 6 million people with Alzheimer's. Mm. You approve, you let this out of the floodgates. And by the way, they approved it for everybody with Alzheimer's. It had the right. Fl- right, broad indication. <laughs> right. We would be talking about a hundred billion dollars in Medicare spending on oh, one drug per annum. Yeah. Um, but finally somebody stepped up and did some good. Well, that that is just a, quite a story, and it's exactly you know, like you said. There was fifteen to zero vote. I think there was one abstention mm. of the expert advisory panel against approval of this drug. Nobody was in favor of it. The FDA said they could not use amyloid as a marker because amyloid is not known to predict al- Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those. It's probably true, true, and unrelated that you have amyloid, you have dementia, and there's not a causal pathway. And so removing plaque has not been shown to reduce that. And yet, so everything was going against it. Right, and then they approved it. And then, as you said, you know, for much wider than were in those two abandoned feudal studies— and then said there'd be a post-marketing study that could take nine years. Yeah, that's right, right. Nine years. Yeah, but go ahead and give it in the meantime. Right. And bankrupt the country. And then the company, you know, because our drug pricing system is totally broken, they, you know, pick numbers out of the air. And the number they picked out of the air that clearly was not a value-based uh-huh. proposition was $56,000. Right. Right. For a drug, for a disease that, you know, millions. Where... I will note, and we were talking about what Medicare does and doesn't pay for. I mean, there are things that have been shown to improve cognition, you know, like, you know, you know, giving people more services, getting people out more, you know, more connections, more. None of that is currently All the covered, blue you know? zone yes. parts of the right. world that live forever and have, they're all community connected, mm-hmm. eating uh-huh. food locally. They're active. They have support of the community. They're taken care of at home. Like they're not, we don't medicalize them. We don't right. give them disease, uh, you know, disease. Right. So, yeah. So that was, and then people started trying to lean on Medicare to say, you have to cover this. Right. And that if you don't, you're disagreeing with the FDA, right. which is totally outrageous. They're yes. two independent agencies. Medicare has, you know, an obligation to only approve treatments that are reasonable and necessary. Yes. I don't know how anyone could credibly argue that this was reasonable and necessary for Medicare beneficiaries. Not even to go that the people in the trials looked nothing like right. the Medicare they're, population. They're only, uh, 6% right. Right. of Medicare is captured, right? It's very unrepresentative. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there was talk about harms. Yes, so not only edema. was there no benefit, yeah. right? 40% had brain edema or swelling. And that was in a trial population where they'd screened out anyone who was on aspirin or any dual antiplatelet oh, agents, which a very high percentage of the Medicare oh, population what, What's a little high. brain edema yeah. between friends? You know what? I could use more brain. <laughs> use more <laughs> brain volume. Yeah, of course. It's <laughs> in, a, in a limited space. <laughs> yeah, in a fixed cavity. Yes. Um, so CMS, I think, really has to be congratulated for yes. taking mm-hmm. the decision that – I mean, there were people that said it just shouldn't be covered. Right. And maybe with that kind of data, one could make that argument. Yes. But politically, that's very difficult. So to say, okay, we're going to do the trial. That should have been done before approval and before the FDA gave this accelerated approval. So they used coverage with evidence development and so they to used do this? the coverage with evidence development and said they will cover – but only if you are going to be in a randomized clinical trial so that we'll actually know whether mm-hmm. this drug 
is good for you or not. And I mean, that's what you want to know. Is it going to help or not? We don't know that now. And the only way we would know it is to do a randomized trial on people that actually look like Medicare beneficiaries. Yeah. So <clears throat> not excluding yeah. you know, anyone who's on any drugs or has any history of illness, because most of Medicare beneficiaries do have some of those things that excluded them from the trials. So, so to bring it kind of full circle yes. to how you introed yourself, you talked about working in Great Britain when you were younger. What would NHS do with this kind of resource allocation question? Would they be better with it? So first of all, we're also, the, we act um, as if we have unlimited money to spend on healthcare, and that is why we're spending $4 trillion. So we never look at cost when we do any kind of evidence review, like all the Medicare coverage things, never look at cost. Mm. I mean, Britain and every other country looks at cost, just like, you know, you might ask prices anytime you go in. And Although I have to say for this drug, I mean, I don't see the point. You, you couldn't pay me to take that drug. Oh, I mean, right, what's right, the yeah. point of talking about cost effectiveness unless you have clinical effectiveness? Right. So I think you only need to talk about cost if you've already shown clinically effective. Right. And what I see is the problem is we have so many treatments on the market now that haven't been shown to be clinically effective oh, so because they've got there on surrogate markers or on no data at all. And that's the problem, I think, with the FDA just being in this big rush to get drugs and devices on the market and not looking at whether they're actually good for patients. So then once you have clinical effectiveness, then Britain will look at the cost. And and they're able to negotiate. You know, Medicare can't negotiate. Can't that. That's right. Right. So they can negotiate and, and get lower prices. So we pay more for everything in this country. Yep. We pay three, four, ten times more for stents, for, for those hips we were talking about, the metal hips, for drugs. I mean, all our prices are so much higher yeah. and then, in the you know, U.S. than anywhere else. And some people argue that you need to pay more because we fund the innovation. That, they say that. Okay. Yeah, but then, you say that. But then Peter Bach had a very clever analysis where he showed that the amount we pay more is bigger than the cumulative global R&D budget put together. <laughs> so so we're, we're paying enough to cover all the innovation and then some, which tells you that we're just getting gouged. We're just getting gouged. Yeah. Um, you know, that $50,000 aducanumab fee, yeah. think how much care you could get in the house. Yeah, you could get a home health person. A home health yeah, person, 24-7 for yeah. like a few months. Yeah. I mean, come on. It doesn't make sense. I mean, that and they would- how much would that benefit the family? Yes, right. yeah, tremendous. I, you know, it's like a, it's got this extended, whereas this tiny improvement, which may not even exist, Correct. which probably yeah. doesn't exist, yeah, probably if we're being exists. honest. Come on. But I guess the Medicare thing opens my eyes too. I think they should be doing this for one third of cancer drug approvals. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have drug, they have so many drugs pouring on the market. Right. They have no randomized data. They should mm -hmm. only cover it in the auspices of our randomization. And right. then we'll get answers for these things. In so, your space, right. it's the worst. Yeah. It really oh, is yeah. the worst. Yeah. Tell me about it. That's yeah. why there's a great I mean, book, Malignant, How <laughs> Bad Policy and Bad Medicines and Harm People with Cancer. Yeah, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Uh, I understand it's Johns Hopkins Press. You the can... Johns Hopkins, the, the premier. The premier yeah. academic publishing. The premier press uh, for- for a niche audience. <laughs> and that's why we're doing a podcast, ladies yeah, and gentlemen, right. to get the word out. Get the word out. Yeah. Well, gosh, we did a thing for quite a while. It's been an hour and 35 minutes. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. an hour and Look at hour. that. And I think we could probably talk for another three hours just on patient safety alone, but let's not we'll save it for another time. Um, Dr. Rita Redberg, this was a really a joy. It was great to talk to you too. I think people get a lot out of this. And VP, this was fun doing a VPZD show that isn't Marty McCary's. I know, yeah. <laughs> we had to bring our best behavior forward. And I, I know. Think we I think we succeeded. You know, I made, we and succeeded. I made, I made an offhand gender uh, stereotype comment earlier where I said, well, maybe Rita is not so, uh, you know, as, no, no. Yeah. doesn't get as much direct hate as us because, you know, 
women are less, you know, I think there's something there to explore because mm-hmm. not, not, not in that sense, but in the sense of the, like often, like when we're sitting here talking with Marty, we're just complete a-holes. Mm-hmm. And, but yet true. there's something different. And I think because there is, there's differences in the way that we can, and it's not just gender, but it's just people are different. So having different guests on that have a different way of con- conveying, mm-hmm. like my wife is always yelling at me and she's like one of, she's more agreeable, mm-hmm. but she does it in a way that actually gets me to change my behavior. <laughs> Whereas if an I yelled at me, I'd be like, bro. <laughs> Do you want to go right now? Because I will lose. I'll lose. I'm 10 years older than you. I will probably throw a disc in my yeah. back and then get an unnecessary spine surgery. Uh, of course you would. They'll, they'll, That's they'll another sink their story for into our next time, the exactly, spine surgery. Exactly. And I guess I'll just say that, you know, I think um, I, I think Rita has been one of the most influential people in medicine. Yeah. And that's why I think I, I think she should always be on those lists. And sometimes influence is hard to measure and hard to see. Okay. But I, yes, but I've definitely seen it because I think these conversations were impossible 15, 20 years ago. And now they're so much in the norm and so many people benefit. They don't even know where they, they, they don't even know where they first heard about it. Yeah. But I think it's an important point. There are two lists I know about. Them. Okay. I mean, I, I, I am on the San Francisco Magazine Top Doctors. Top oh, okay. okay. That's good. And some other, someone else who always wants to sell me a plaque. I forgot uh-huh. the name what of that What about modern list. healthcare? Yeah. That's what you need to get. And uh-huh. this, a colleague who's an interventional cardiologist, and we didn't talk about stents this time. And oh, next we did time. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But he came back from a the meeting of Interventional Cardiologists, Society of Cardiac Angiography, and, and told me they had a list of the top 10 threats to interventional cardiology, and I was on that list. <laughs> yes, so I'm proud of that. See? I so I made some important lists. <laughs> threats to our profession. Man, when people have you on a list of threats, you have arrived. I've arrived. Oh, man, that's so awesome. Rita Redberg, professor yeah. of medicine, a cardiologist at UCSF. And, and threat to interventionists <laughs> and a threat yeah. to interventionists everywhere, but a boon to patients yeah. and safety and Thank rationality. You. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It was really fun to be on your ZP. What is it? It sounds Z-D-V-P. like a- ZDVP. <laughs> it's something it's like vaguely that. like a STD. VPZD yeah, has a, that kind of just ring. Just rolls off your <laughs> Got it. Maybe that's our problem. It comes with Maybe a high RPR, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Buddy. Thank you, guys. And we are out. Peace.